0: Thank you guys for a lovely time of worship, guiding us in that. Always a treat to be in the Lord's house, as Paul said. And I am glad to be with you. This month marks my eighth anniversary as your pastor. How about that? Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, eight years this month, and boy, it's been a uh, wild ride. It's been a joy in a lot of ways, and I am just, uh, I just want to say I'm grateful for each and every one of you walking alongside me, walking alongside our family during these past eight years, and uh, just for fun, I did a little research on how the world has changed in the past eight years, and uh, eight years ago, the iPad was brand new. How about that? Now it's pro. It was, it was just Novice back then. But uh, the Mars Curiosity Rover had just landed eight years ago. Uh, There was no such thing as virtual reality. There was no Uber. There was no Airbnb. Uh, During the past eight years, the New England Patriots appeared in five Super Bowls. The Seahawks appeared in two. My Dallas Cowboys appeared in zero. Zero. (laughs) We had two presidential elections, of course. And uh, on a personal note, I gained four kids. And I guess technically I gained one adult since my oldest is now 20. But God has certainly done some amazing things in our family, and our church over these past eight years. And I share this with you because the past eight years seems like a long time in some ways, but in, in other ways it's gone by just like a flash, right? And that's how these things work, isn't it? Uh, you think about your own life, eight years ago, I'm sure you'll have the same kind of experience. seems like a long time, and yet it seems like no time at all has really passed, and uh, That's true for us, but it's also a truth that speaks directly to this parable that we're going to examine today. Throughout the summer, we've been exploring parables of Jesus, and we've been doing it in kind of a haphazard manner, meaning we've looked at different parables in random order, not necessarily uh, discussing how they might be connected to each other or or the larger context, how they relate. And and yet this morning, that's going to change, because our parable this morning and next week's parable are connected. And the, the context of these parables this week and next is, is really important. You can't really understand these parables fully without some understanding, at least, of the larger context. And both these parables, this week and next, are found in Matthew 25. You can go ahead and turn there, Matthew 25. We're going to look at one this week. We'll look at one next week. And the whole chapter, Matthew 25, is really an answer to a question that the disciples ask of Jesus. They ask a question, and he gives them a very lengthy answer. And so the context is, is is quite important. And the question they ask actually comes way back at the beginning of the previous chapter, Matthew 24. So both these chapters together are our long answer to this question, which is why I say the context is is so important. And so let's glance just very briefly at the disciples' question that starts all this off. Here it is. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. This is a magnificent structure. they never seen anything like it. He replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen? What's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's, there's really three Questions. When will these things happen? What's the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the end of the age? And, and we don't have time this morning to address all the ways that Jesus answers that question, but I'm going to give you a brief overview. In, in chapter 24, he, he gives the disciples a lot of warnings. Watch out, you're not deceived by this or, or led astray by that. But those warnings are not the sign. He tells them, you're going to hear about rumors of wars, verse 6, but don't be distracted by that kind of stuff. There's going to be false prophets. Don't be deceived. Those things are not the sign that they asked about. And after the warnings, he gives them the sign that they asked about. He says this, verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the the sign is the coming of the Lord Jesus himself. He will return and he's going to set in motion these events of the end times. That's the sign that we look for as a church that we just sang about. That's one of the reasons our church doctrine says we believe in the imminent return of Jesus. Imminent meaning he could come back at any time. Our doctrinal statement says this. We believe in the imminent personal return of Christ. And you can see... One of the verses referenced there is right here, Matthew 24 and 25. So all this context is important. Jesus gives them this sign that he's coming back, and then he begins to teach them in parables. And the teaching is all about how to live while you wait for him to return. He tells the parable in verse 43 of a thief who comes unexpectedly. You don't know when your house is going to be robbed. Jesus is highlighting the fact that he comes come at an hour when you do not expect him. He says that verse 44. Verse 45, he tells a parable about two servants. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and he starts to beat his fellow servants, eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this parable, one servant is faithful, one servant is foolish, the master leaves for a long time and then he comes back. The faithful servant is doing what he's supposed to do when the master returns. The the wicked or the foolish servant is carousing and sinning and surprised when the master returns. So the point, again, that Jesus will return at any time and we should be ready. And all that context leads us to the parable we're going to talk about today and then next week's parable as well. So chapter 25 contains these parables that are really just a a continuation of Jesus' teaching that answers the disciples' question, when? So I've thrown a lot of stuff at you already and we're only through page two, but uh, we got a lot more to go. So I want us to, to keep this context in our minds. It's going to help us understand this parable, but also help it more than anything to apply it to our own lives, which is ultimately our goal, letting ourselves be changed by our encounter with God's Word. Uh, my wife and I, we love to travel. We have the, have the privilege of traveling to a lot of different places around the U.S. and internationally, and we make pretty good travel partners. Uh, we work well together traveling. That's not true for every couple, but uh, there's only one problem my wife is cursed. Uh, She has been turned away more than once from some wonderful tourist destinations. The first time it happened was at uh, Versailles Palace in France. It's a stunning place, definitely worth a visit. Uh, fortunately, I had been there before I met her, so that's, that's off my bucket list. But, but she has not been there despite trying very, very hard. She went to France when she was in school. She got up early one day, 5 a.m. in order to make the train from Paris over to Versailles. But all the other students she was traveling with, she was the only one who got up in time to make the train. She couldn't go by herself, so, so there you go. But later, she had a second chance to go to Versailles. She went on another trip to France. And this time, everybody was determined to to help her get there, especially after what had happened before. And so they're running and rushing and a little delay here and a little unexpected slowdown here. And she got to the palace just in time to see the employee change the sign from open to closed. She's still never seen the inside of the palace, which, by the way, is amazing. But well, this is a recurring pattern for her. Just a couple of years ago, we were in the Bay Area down in California. We wanted to stop at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Okay? It's listed on TripAdvisor as uh, the top attraction in Monterey, California. It has almost 14,000 four-and-a-half-star reviews. It's been on my wife's bucket list for a long time, but we were headed there. We we finally had a chance to go there in person, and we ran into some problems. We got to town later than we wanted to. It was late afternoon, and by the time we rolled into the parking lot, she got out of the car. She ran up to the entrance just in time to see the aquarium employee employee lock the door. They were closing for the day, and my wife said, You have no idea how hard I've worked to get here. And the lady just said, Sorry. She was not sorry. Sorry. So that's my wife. She could be a cursed travel partner. And a lesser person would would lose hope, would lose faith, would throw in the towel and think, "Ah, I'm never going to have a chance to see those places or have those experiences. A lesser person would lose faith, having to wait several more years before you could finally fulfill that wish, right? But my wife is not a lesser person. She's an amazing person. She has faith. She's undaunted by these setbacks. And her determination can teach us a little something about faith. Faith is one of those words we toss around a lot, but it's worth taking a moment to clarify. Our culture tends to define faith in a certain way. It's kind of a blurred line between faith and hope without any real object behind it. But thankfully, the Bible itself gives us a great definition of faith. I'm sure you've heard this verse from the book of Hebrews. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So faith is not just vague hope in some mysterious thing. That's just wishing. Faith is is more than that. Faith involves certainty. It involves trusting that what we hope for is actually real. Believing that what we think is true is actually true. In this case, we have faith that Jesus will return just as he said he would. We have certainty that his word to the original disciples is true and that he loves us enough to keep his word. So with that definition in mind and with all the context of the parable in mind, let's take a look at this parable, the very beginning of Matthew 25. Jesus has answered the disciples' question and he's teaching them how to live while they wait for his return. This is known as the parable of the ten virgins. Let's take a look. At that time, the kingdom of heaven would be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish Five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with the lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you do not know either the day or the hour. So so, right at the end, you see the, the point that Jesus is making here, be alert. He is using this parable to teach the disciples how to respond to the question of when he will return. And if that's the, the point of this parable, if, if being alert is Jesus' goal, then let's make a few observations about the parable. It starts off describing ten virgins. They're, they're bridesmaids at a wedding. And these are young girls, maybe 14 or so, uh, makes me think about a group of girls I saw at Starbucks the other day. Uh, at Starbucks this summer, they released a, a special drink. It's called the tie-dye frappuccino, right? It basically has one purpose, to be photo-worthy. I mean, sugar tastes the same no matter what color it is, right? So they make this drink nice and colorful so that people will take a picture of it and uh, and share it on social media. It's just a marketing ploy. And the other day I was at Starbucks and uh, that's exactly what I saw. A group of girls, five or six of them maybe about uh, 14 years old and they all bought this drink and they're posing with the drink and they're taking each other's pictures and, and uh, you know taking the picture of the drink by itself it was very uh, entertaining to watch and I thought this poor Frappuccino needs an agent or a modeling contract. It's got so many pictures taken of it but but that's kind of what I imagine these 10 virgins to be. I mean, they're headed off to a wedding party, right? They're excited for their friend, but they're also excited for themselves, for what's going to happen. And yet the parable tells us that some of them are wise and some of them are foolish. So what's the difference? I mean, they're all invited to the wedding, they're all intimately connected to the bride. So what's the difference? What makes some wise and some foolish? Well, some have brought oil and some have not for their oil lamps. In other words, some are ready for the delay, and some are not. Remember, this parable fits within the larger context of Jesus' teaching. All uh, these descriptions, wise and foolish, helps us connect it to the parable that Jesus told just before, the wise and foolish servants. We read a minute ago, and in that parable, the wise servant is the one who's found doing his job. He's the one who's faithful to the master, even though the master has been gone a long, long time. So the wise virgins or bridesmaids are the ones who are faithful. That's the point of connection. John MacArthur says this about these two parables together. He says the parable of the two servants makes the point that we must not assume Christ will delay his coming but be ready for him to return at any time. The parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids follows immediately and simply reverses the point. Being ready for him to return at any time also means we must not be caught off guard if he does delay True readiness requires that balance in our expectations. So Jesus uses these parables to teach these original disciples how to live while they wait for him to return. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. That's been a long time. And we're still waiting. Generations of disciples have come and have gone, and we're still waiting. This parable tells us we might be waiting a long, long time even though we believe that Jesus could return at any moment, that moment we wait for might be a long, long time from now. But we stay ready. We stay alert, even when the waiting goes on for a long, long time. The parable tells us in verse 5, when the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. The delay is the key idea. Jesus taught in the previous parable he could return at any time, Now, in this parable, he teaches about how to handle the delay if he doesn't return for a long time. And notice, all ten of the virgins became drowsy. They're all waiting, but some are waiting wisely, and some are waiting foolishly. I have a friend who says that God only has three speeds at which he works, slow, slower, and suddenly. I've certainly seen that in my life, waiting on different... Prayers to be answered, waiting on him to reveal his plans. And as we wait, it's easy to get lulled into a state of drowsiness, to get complacent. Just going about our lives without that sense of anticipation, that sense of watchfulness. Without the necessary preparation. But the wise virgins are the ones who were prepared for the delay. They were ready. That's what Jesus wants for us too. So how do we apply this parable To ourselves, All summer we've been trying to find ourselves in the parables of Jesus. How do we fit into this parable? Obviously we want to be found among the wise, not the foolish. So what does wisdom look like for us? As a church, we're in our own waiting period. Not only do we wait for the return of Christ, but we're waiting for the, the next chapter in the story of this particular church, waiting for what God has next, for who God has next. And we've been waiting a long time. 581 days, but who's counting? The temptation is for us to get drowsy, to lose our sense of anticipation, of watchfulness, of alertness. But the wise bridesmaids are the one who stayed ready. So what's the wise choice for us to make? Just as these wise virgins brought along extra oil for the delay, what do we do in the delay? And I think that's the the natural question to ask ourselves. What do we do while we wait, while we wait for Christ to return, while we wait for what's next. But it's also a dangerous question, because thinking about doing puts a little too much stock in our own efforts. This parable is really a parable about judgment. The bridesmaids get to the wedding banquet, the great feast that is the kingdom. We explored that idea a couple of weeks ago, and the door is shut on them. Some are judged and are allowed in. Others are judged and are not allowed in. We see the same judgment idea with the last parable in this chapter. The parable is sheep and goats. They're both judged. We talked about that a few weeks ago in our dual language service. So it's ultimately a parable about judgment. And that's why doing is dangerous. Asking ourselves what we do becomes dangerous. Our human inclination is to focus on on doing because it seems so simple. Just tell me what to do and I'll get to work. But waiting with the right mindset means we need to remember the work has already been done. That's the heart of the gospel. Not that we on our own can do anything to secure eternal life, but Jesus has done all that's necessary. His sacrifice paid the price for our sins. We couldn't do that. His sacrifice and his resurrection accomplished all that's needed for us to enter eternal life. We couldn't do that, but in him, it's done. So ultimately, we're going to be judged on one thing, how we respond to the completed work of Jesus. It's not about us doing anything, but trusting in what Jesus has already done. And trusting in what Jesus has done brings us right back to faith. Remember that definition from the book of Hebrews? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So this is a parable about being ready, It's a parable about judgment, but it's not a parable about doing. It's ultimately a parable about faith. That's how we respond to what Jesus has done with faith. We wait with faith. The wise virgins are the ones who had faith. Faith that the groom would eventually come, even if it takes a long, long time. And when he comes, they'll be ready. Maybe you've seen those church signs that are a little bit witty and a little bit cheesy. There's a few of them around town. I came across a church sign the other day that said this, Jesus is coming, look busy. Waiting with faith can sometimes feel like that. Like we're just spinning our wheels, trying to do something, trying to look busy. And in this church, again, we're in our own unique waiting time. There's a strong temptation to to look busy, to, to just do a bunch of activity while we wait. Yet Jesus ends this parable with a very simple command, a charge for us. He says in verse 13, Therefore, be alert. That's Jesus' desire for us. Everything in us wants to, to do something to be alert. Like people who buy those uh, disaster preparedness food kits, you know, like a year's worth of food you can store up just in case there's a disaster. We want to live like that. We want to live like we can, we can feel good about our efforts. We've done something to be ready, to stay alert. If we look busy, maybe we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're alert and we're really ready. But let's avoid that temptation to just do things. And let's focus on waiting with faith, with confidence that God will do what he said he would do. Waiting with faith is the key. That's the, the key to, to stay alert and stay ready. To keep living on faith, keep trusting on him even if he's delayed for a very long time. And trusting on him is not a passive activity. Waiting on faith, with faith is not the same as looking busy. It doesn't mean we sit around and gaze at our navels while we wait for Jesus to return. Uh, putting our faith in him does not mean passive faith because throughout the Bible, faith is always accompanied by deeds, by action. Faith shows up in our lives. That's certainly the expectation of Jesus, that we would be actively living out our faith. And there's a tension between active faith and and doing something on our own. It's a a delicate balance. In fact, it's a tension that Jesus addresses with his disciples in the very next chapter, Matthew 26. Jesus is praying. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane just, just hours before he's arrested and ultimately killed. And Jesus gives his disciples some similar instructions. In the parable, he tells them, be alert. And in the garden, he tells them how to do it how to wait with faith without slipping into that temptation of doing things on our own power. Jesus tells them, watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. They're to watch, to be alert, but the faith is not passive. There's a there's behavior that goes along with it. They're expectant, they're ready, and the way they're ready is through prayer, through staying intimately connected to God. They're not doing things on their own, but they're growing in their relationship with God becoming more and more dependent on him, more connected to him. So we wait with faith, but faith that is not passive. We wait with faith that's active, that responds to him, that that serves him while we wait, that grows us closer to him. And that's true for us as individuals in our own spiritual life, but it's also true for us as a church. In our unique time of waiting, we need active faith, growing in him, serving him with purpose. Earlier I shared a phrase from our church doctrinal statement, one of our beliefs. We have faith in the imminent personal return of Christ. We know that Christ is returning. We have confidence that he will come at any time. And yet we also learn from him how to wait with faith. There's one more phrase at the end of that statement, at the end of the doctrine. It ends with this, which has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. We wait with faith with the imminent personal return of Christ which has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. So our faith is active. Our waiting doesn't make us weary or complacent but it has a vital bearing on our lives and our service to God. We wait with faith that is active and that grows us closer to him. Let's pray. God, we... uh, We have to confess our temptation is to do, to do something, to uh, try to do something, even if it's just to try to please you with our actions, and yet we know that you're pleased with us already. You've demonstrated the, the ultimate act of love for us in going to the cross for us, that nothing else we could do could make you love us any more than that, and we want to find rest in that. We want to find hope in the reality that you are in control you have uh, given us everything we need to wait with faith help us to be living in a way that's not complacent but that is growing in you doing the things that are going to connect us more and more to you and that means we become more dependent on you that's that's how we want to find ourselves and as a church, that's how we want to find ourselves too, as we wait not only for the return of Christ, but we wait for what you have next for us, submitting ourselves to your plan, not trying to, uh, to do anything, to manufacture something, but just to rest in the wisdom that you have for us, the grace that you have for us, the love that you have for us. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.